Now we continue to look together at the book of Galatians and we come to chapter 4, the first seven verses. And I really do remember that on Sunday evenings uh, we're tired and uh, that uh, we need to do things a bit differently, as I do sometimes on Wednesday evenings also. I've spent all afternoon rewriting this and shortening it up. So I did that for your benefit, did the same thing last week. And we come to Galatians 4, the first seven verses. Let's briefly pray. Gracious God and Father in heaven, as we come to this wondrous text on which we could spend many Sundays, we pray that nonetheless the Holy Spirit, of whom we read in this passage, the spirit of adoption, will be at work within our hearts so that as we have just sung just a little while ago, the Spirit of God crying, Abba, Father, within us, might enable us to see something of our great privileges together in Christ our Lord. And Father, for those who may be among us who do not know the Savior, even on a Sunday evening such as this, may they walk out knowing that God is their Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, fill this evening service, we pray, morning service and evening service here with people in need of Jesus. May they know when they come they will hear the cross of Christ proclaimed and the Savior extolled. And that is the Savior we all need. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So... You are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. As I was preparing this sermon on this text tonight, I couldn't help but ruminate upon how the Lord Jesus Christ drew me initially to himself. I was a boy of 13 years old. I had felt the the sting of the law of God, the heaviness of my guilt, and I knew that I needed a Savior, but I didn't know to whom to turn or, or how to find him. Well, he found me. And I came under the preaching of the gospel. It was a very poor sermon. It was not well preached. It was filled with error. But as I think I've told you before, there was John 3.16. And when John 3.16 was read by the preacher, the Holy Spirit took it right to my heart and saved me from my sin. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. Only God could have done that. Only God can save a sinner, redeem us, call us to himself. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. You know, that very night, I gathered around me some, uh, some young men, and I opened the Bible, and I began to teach them the Bible. I didn't know a thing about the Bible, and of course, it wasn't the right thing to do, but it was a right response in the sense that not only did God call me to himself on the night that I was converted, but he also gave me immediately a sense of call to the ministry of the Word. I think that's a rare thing. Usually, there's a distance between those two things, but for me... The very night he converted me, the Holy Spirit also gave me that sense of call to the ministry of the Word. All I wanted to do as a boy of 13 was to open the Bible and teach it to other people, 
to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ, to know the Bible, understand the Bible, and to teach the Bible to others. And that call just grew in my life as time went on. It didn't uh, in any way subside. It was later confirmed by the church. And still, there's nothing that I want to do in life but study the Scriptures, know the Bible, and proclaim Jesus, proclaim Jesus, proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's all I want to do. Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, I didn't know anything when I was converted about the spirit of adoption and what it meant that the Holy Spirit came to indwell me. I knew that I was lost and now I was saved. I stood up actually in that meeting in which I was converted and I actually gave a testimony. I said, you know, when I walked in here, I didn't even know if there was a God. My theology grew. Later I understood I was suppressing what I knew to be true, but that's what I said. I didn't even know there was a God, but I know him now and I know that he loves me. And that sense of God's love has only grown as time has gone by. Why? Because the spirit of adoption indwells me, and that spirit has enabled me to know that God is my Father. Well, you know how it is. You grow as a Christian, and you go through many things, experiences, things that are very, very hard. And so there are times of weeping and crying, and and there's a lot of agony also that comes with the Christian life, trying to understand truth, apply truth, uh, temptation, sin, Uh, Sometimes you think you make progress, then you fall back, uh, people that oppose you, all of those kinds of things. And so I spent a lot of time in prayer. Well, I had this eager desire to pray, and I had this eager desire to join with God's people in worship. I didn't want that before that night when I heard the gospel and was converted. I didn't care. I did everything I could to get my mother to, to, to allow me to stay home from worship. Rather than to go to worship, I didn't want to go to worship. I certainly didn't want to pray. had no desire for that whatsoever. I did everything I could. I mean, I would feign sickness and anything I could to stay home uh, because I didn't care anything about God, His gospel. Well, what changed my heart? Well, that was the Holy Spirit that changed my heart. Well, all of that, I think, is very strange and mysterious. I can't explain it. How does God open a heart? How does He fill a heart? How does He guide us, direct us, lead us, take His Word, help us to understand His truth, grow us in grace? But that really is what Paul the Apostle is getting at here in this passage. We have this spirit that is called the spirit of adoption that now indwells all of us who are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I think we hardly realize our privileges Again, I was reading just, uh, just yesterday of a number of, of godly ministers, and I was reading about their death accounts. And it's, it's, it's as they're on their deathbed that so many of these men of God find that the, the wondrous truths that they preached and lived in all those many years become so incredibly dear to them, and, and they understand them far better, and they're, they're really prepared to go from this world into the next. Why? because they understand something of the privileges that they have in Jesus our Lord. And also there's this idea of intimacy that we find in this passage, and that was something wonderful to read in those, in those accounts of ministers' deaths as well, the intimacy that they had with the Father as they were about to leave this world and go into the next. Well, I just think we don't get it. We don't understand the privileges and the intimacy that we have in Jesus. So let's spend a few minutes with this text and try and understand something of what all of this means. Now, the first thing I want to say very briefly is that adoption means freedom from slavery. Adoption means freedom from slavery. Now, let's read these first three verses again. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. 
In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Adoption means freedom from slavery, and this, first of all, applies to Israel under the law. That's the immediate reference of Paul the Apostle here, that Israel under the law was under guardians until the time of Christ's coming. And when he compares this to a child that is the owner of everything but under guardians and managers until the date set by the father, the assumption here is that the father has died, but the child is still too young to inherit. And so in that way, he is still like a slave. He has an inheritance that's out there, but he can't realize it. Israel was that way. Israel was like, like this child awaiting an inheritance. When Christ came, the inheritance came, and it meant freedom from their bondage. But not only does this apply to Israel under the law, but it applies also to the world at large as God is drawing his own people unto himself. Uh, we're, we're told here of the elementary principles. Did you notice that in verse 3? In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That not only refers to Israel, because a little later in the text, he will refer elementary principles to the Gentiles to whom he's writing. The elementary principles, this is something that exegetes debate a great deal, but what it really means, the bottom line, is whatever we trust to save us. Those things that we entrust our lives to that enslave us rather than save us. And this is not only applicable to ancient Israel, but it is applicable to the Gentiles, to all the world at large, We were enslaved under those elementary principles, but now have been freed by Christ. And so it applies not only to Israel, but to the world at large, and it applies to us as believers in Jesus Christ. For we have now been freed from those elementary principles. We have been freed from those things that bound us. We have been freed from those things that we trusted to deliver us that could never have saved us and could never have redeemed us and could never have delivered us. Now, the point here is that the Galatians were forgetting their freedom in Christ. We read, for example, in verses 8 and 9, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. For now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless, here's the word again, elementary principles of the world? And again, he tells us in chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So the message of this part of the text is very clear. Adoption means freedom from slavery. Get your privilege. Understand your freedom. Don't return to those things that once enslaved you. Don't return to those things that once bound you. Don't return to those idols that you thought once could redeem you but couldn't, from which you have been saved and redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And this great word should be written over our lives, and that word is remember. Remember who Christ is. Remember what he has done. Remember the freedom that is purchased for you by his shed blood. Remember what he did when he converted you. Remember what he did when he saved you. You are now free 
Therefore, act as free men and women in Christ. Do not act as those who are still in bondage to those things that cannot save. Now, that's the first point. Adoption means freedom from slavery. The second thing I want you to see is the cost of our freedom, the cost of our freedom. And we find that in verses 4 and 5. Look at these verses, wondrous verses they are. But when the fullness of time came, had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's dwell upon each phrase. First of all, the Son came in the fullness of time. That is to say, God was in control of the entire providential and prophetic context. It's as if redemptive history were a glass that was being filled with water until finally it came to the overflow point, and at that point God sent His Son. All of the predictions are fulfilled. All of the prophecies are fulfilled. All of God's purpose that led up to that point are fulfilled. In the fullness of time, God sent His own Son in order that He might be our Redeemer. But notice this. The Son was sent by the Father. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son And of course, that's a marvelous thing because the word son, when you read it in the New Testament of Jesus, means that he shares in the same essence with the Father. It means his deity. It's a reminder to you that the one who came and condescended and redeemed is the second person of the Trinity, that he shares in the same essence and substance with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. The son was sent by the Father. Well, that says something of the cost of your redemption, does it not? And your adoption into the family of God, that it required the Son to come and to redeem you from your awful sins. But the Son was also sent by the Father. For we read, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. He was sent by the Father, which again is a reference to the commission that the Son received from the Father in eternity past. Read John's Gospel and you read it on almost every page, in which the Lord Jesus is referring to having come into this world because He was sent by the Father. This is that glorious covenant of redemption of which we have spoken so often, in which the Father chose His own Son to come into this world and sent Him. He willingly came in order that He might redeem the elect of God. But also notice in these verses that the Son was born of a woman. Now why is that important? Well, it's important because it references the incarnation of our Lord, that He actually took human nature. Now, here's the wonder of what he did when he went to the cross for us. It is God only that can save. But it's man who fell and man who disobeyed, and so it's man that must redeem. But there is no man that can redeem. And so the answer that is found in God's economy is that God the Son became man in order that we might be redeemed and saved from our sin. Only God can save Only man can save. That's a conundrum for us, but not for the Almighty God. And so he sent his own son, born of a woman, that we might be redeemed. But notice also that this son that was born of a woman was born under the law. That's important because it's a reference to the obedience of Christ. 
He is born under the law of God that you and I broke. You and I are born under that law as well. We are born with an obligation to keep that law and we cannot keep it. And because of that, we are condemned along with Adam's race, the entire human race who has broken that law. But Christ came into this world and he obeyed the law that we broke. Now, I've been contemplating this wondrous truth of justification in very many ways um, of late, as I often do. And, you know, I think sometimes that we think it's adequate when we think of justification to think that, um, that the definition of justification, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, to think that that's an adequate definition, but it isn't. It is not. Because it's not simply as if you had never sinned nor been a sinner. You are not a sinner. You have never sinned. That's what justification is saying. That's the wonder of it all. There is no record in any court against you that you ever sinned. I'm speaking judicially in terms of God's condemnation in God's court of law. There is no record that you ever sinned. In other words, let me put it this way. There was a real transference of my sin and my crime to Jesus Christ my Lord so that the condemnation and wrath of God do me fell on Him. And there was a real transference of the righteousness, that is, the perfect record of Jesus to me when I believed in Him. A real imputation, a real transference. So that His record is my record. It's not simply as if I had never sinned or been a sinner. In God's court of law, I have never been a sinner. The complete perfection of Christ is mine. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you think of a human analogy, you won't find one. There is no human analogy. You can think of a human substitution. You can think, for example, of maybe a brother that that says to, uh, to a judge in a circumstance, I will take the penalty for him. And he takes the penalty as a substitute for his brother. Well, there's a genuine substitution there. That's some way analogous to the substitutionary work of Christ for us. But there is no justification there. There may be pardon, but there's no justification. Never would you say of the brother who didn't pay for the crime, he was just. That's what God says of you. He says, you are just in my court of law. You're not simply pardoned. You are pardoned, but you're not simply pardoned. You're not only forgiven. You are just in my court of law. That's why it's important that the text tells us that Jesus was born of a woman born under law because he obeyed the law we broke in our place. He went to a cross and paid the penalty of the broken law in our place in order that we might be just in the presence of almighty, infinite 
justice. It's a marvelous thing to consider. And we are told here in verses 4 and 5 that the Son redeemed those who were under the law. The Son was born under the law that He might redeem those who were under the law. And the word He uses, ex agarazzo, means to buy back. He bought you with His shed blood. He purchased you with His shed blood. He bought you back to Himself from the law and its condemnation. That's the cost. It's the same cost of which we read in verse 13 of chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then notice that he says, the Son came in the fullness of time. The Son was sent by the Father. The Son was sent by the Father. The Son was born of a woman. The Son was born under the law. The Son redeemed those under law. And the Son did this that we might become the sons of God, that we might be adopted as sons. By the way, Paul the Apostle is the only New Testament writer that uses the term weathesia, adoption. He's the only New Testament writer that does so. And here's his logic. There's something here that is called a chiasm, grammatically. It just means a, a cross, an X, if you will. Here's the logic of the Apostle here. The Son becomes man, that we might become sons. He was subject to the law, that we might be freed from the law. That's his thought process in this wondrous passage. (laughs) You're free, people of God. You're free from the law. You don't owe it. To use the old language that we sing in one of our songs, you don't owe it a farthing. You don't owe it a penny. It's all been paid, every bit of it, by Jesus' shed blood on the cross. That's what verses 4 and 5 means to you, the child of God. Third thing, we now enjoy the privileges of sons of God. And will you read with me again verses 6 and 7? And because you are sons, God sent the the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you were no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Oh, people of God, we are told so many things here. We are indwelt by the spirit of adoption. That means that God wants communion with you. (laughs) Okay, be amazed. God wants communion with you. He puts the spirit of adoption within God, the just, almighty, infinite king, wants communion with you. The spirit is internal, penetrates our deepest motives and affections, and the spirit cries, Abba, Father. Now, the implications here are just immense, and I can only mention a few. Let me, though, a few. The implications are immense. First of all, there is liberty from slavish fear. And the way that I've often described it and love to think of it, again, no human analogy, but we stand before God in His court of law. There we are, sinners deserving His displeasure. Uh, There we know that the gavel is going to come down and we are to be pronounced guilty in His court of law. But when the gavel comes down, He says, not guilty, positively righteous in my court of law because my Son has paid 
your debt for you. That's justification. But as if that were not enough, the judge himself takes his righteous robe of justification, puts it over you, and then says, now I'm adopting you into my family. I'm going to be your father, and you're going to be my child. And so, people of God, when that happens, there is liberty from slavish fear. There is an appropriate fear of the Lord that should fill our hearts, but it should never be that slavish sort of fear that we knew before conversion. We should never again stand before before God in all of his justice and quake in fear that he's going to condemn us because that condemning wrath has already been dealt with once and for all in Jesus. The spirit that comes into our hearts means that he is communicating to us the truth of liberty from slavish fear. But also there is the assurance that we are the sons and the daughters of the living of God, living God. Notice that he says here that the spirit of his son that comes into our hearts cries, Abba, Father. The spirit cries, Abba, Father. But if you were to read of, of this in Romans chapter 8, you would read that we cry, Abba, Father. Well, which is it? Is it that the Spirit cries or that we cry? Well, it is the Spirit who cries and enables us also to cry out in the assurance of faith. In other words, the Spirit of God is working within us, putting my name on the promises of God and putting my name on the promises of God, enabling me to cry out with his voice to the Father in full assurance of faith, then I recognize that all of the promises of God are signed and sealed and delivered for me. That's why the Spirit is called by Paul in other places the earnest of our inheritance. He is the surety of our inheritance. He is the one who assures us that that inheritance belongs to us, assurance of our adoption. You see assurance in another way in this passage, though. You see it here because haven't you seen the Trinity in this passage? You see the Father who sent the Son, and the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. That means that behind the salvation that He has ordained for you is the salvation of the one being of God, the triune nature of God, the Father who chose His people, the Son who died for His people, the Holy Spirit who applies that work to His people. Is that assurance or not? Again, that trinity of securities is found in these verses. It's a wondrous thing to think about, that we have complete assurance of our adoption. But not only that, another implication of all of this is that you have access. Now, I find that to be a marvelous and wonderful thing. I told you how when I was converted, I began to teach, but I also began to pray. It's just a natural thing for someone who came, comes to faith in Christ to want to cry out to God and want to spend time with Him. I'm not saying it doesn't take work and effort to learn and some discipline and all the rest, but there's something within the heart that now wants to fellowship with God, wants to, to know Him and wants to cry out to Him. And so we have access to God. And one of the reasons among many that I think that that God tells us that we are to cry out in Romans 8 and that the Spirit cries out in this passage, Abba, is because you know that Abba is the word for Father that was the 
Aramaic word that was used for intimacy. It means that we're to be intimate with God, that we have full access to God, uh, that this God before whom I once had every right to quake and fear now wants me to come into his presence, and through the blood of Jesus Christ I have access to him, and the, the Holy Spirit enables us now to come into his presence and to know that we have full and free access to him. And because he tells us that it's this word Abba, this word of intimacy, then I think also that's teaching us essentially that we should be very natural when we pray, very natural with God. Now, your way of being natural may be different from someone else's way of being natural, and I'm not suggesting that you should be flippant in your prayers or irreverent in your prayers, you know that. But nonetheless, you should come to him lisping as a little child. You should go to him as your father. You should recognize that he's a king, but recognize that the king is also your father. I think I've told you about a young man who had a father who was a corporate executive. And that corporate executive had told his son, anytime you want to see me, you have access to me. All you have to do is come in my office. Now, someone else wanting to see that corporate executive would have to dial up, talk to a number of secretaries, finally get to the right one, get on the calendar, and maybe three months later would come and see him. But when the child wanted to see his father, he was told, you have access. So he would walk into the corporate office, walk through the secretaries, and run and jump into his father's lap. That's what we have. We have free access to God. The Spirit cries, Abba. We cry, Abba. We have free access. You don't have to dial him up. You don't have to go through a secretary. You don't have to take a number. And I think it's a marvelous thing to consider, don't you? That God in his infinite wisdom and knowledge and ability hears all of the prayers of all of his people all of the time and he never gets confused. (laughs) Just go to him. Just go. You have free access to him. Go to him. Pray. Seek him out. Learn to fellowship with him in prayer. But not only do we have liberty from slavish fear, assurance of adoption and access, but we also have, we also have intimacy with him. Intimacy. Now I've said that, but I'm trying to say it in a little different way. We have intimacy with him. And what I'm really dwelling on is the fact that it says, look at it, in verse 6, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Now, he could have said he sent the Spirit into our bodies, and that would have been true. He could have said that he sent the Spirit into our minds, and that would be true. But what does he say? He sent the Spirit into our hearts. Why? Because that's the seat of the affections. That's the place of intimacy. Think of it this way. We have a literal physical heart, kind of right here in the center of the body, right? And that blood is being pumped all through the body. And we can know the, the joy of vitality because we, we run and the blood pumps and the heart keeps it, keeps it circulating. Well, in that very way, spiritually speaking, the Holy Spirit has come into our hearts and pumps the vitality of spiritual blood throughout our system, keeping us alive and awake and assured and keeping that, that vitality just moving in our lives. That's the intimacy that is worked within us by the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes I've talked with professing Christians who don't seem to have a clue about this, who don't seem to understand this. Let me tell you, this can only be taught by the Spirit of God who indwells the Christian. 
An unbeliever can't understand this. They don't know what in the world we're talking about when we talk about intimacy with God and fellowship with the Father through the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in these strange and mysterious ways. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. Listen, if you and I, if you and I thought that, that God would come and knock at our door and was waiting for us to let him in, it, he would never have come. He came in. He entered in. He sovereignly and effectually draws his people. And when he does that, he establishes through the spirit that indwells us this intimacy between him and ourselves so that we have this wonderful ability now to come to him with free access and yes, to know and experience that he indwells us as his people. And I also think what is implied here is that because the spirit of adoption indwells us, we have joy. Now, I did not say that we always have happiness, because we don't. But we do, as God's people, have joy. Where do I get that? I get it from the word cry. Look at it. And because you were sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you were no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You see the connection? He uses this word, kradzane, cry. It means a, a loud cry. It's the same word that, that is used by Jesus when he cried out from the cross. It's a loud cry. The Spirit of God cries out, and we cry out, according to Romans chapter 8. But it's connected with freedom from the law. And because it's connected here with freedom from the law, I can't help but think that the Apostle Paul is saying that primarily the cry is a cry of exultant joy. It's the cry of a heart that knows I'm not condemned anymore. It's the cry of a heart that knows I'm indwelt by the Spirit. It's the cry of someone who knows I'm a child of God. I really am his son. It's the cry of someone who knows that all of my sins are under the value of Jesus' blood. It's the cry of one who knows that he is a son and an heir and no longer a slave. Exultant joy. And so the implications are immense. Liberty from slavish fear, assurance of adoption, access, intimacy, joy, and undoubtedly much more than we have said tonight. But let's bring it to a conclusion. First of all, for an unbeliever who may be among us tonight, there is the tendency on the part of people still to think that, um, that man is basically good, and the Bible says that is not true, and to think that uh, there's a brotherhood of man, and to think that there is a universal fatherhood of God. And if you think that's what Christianity is, you have a wrong notion of Christianity because the Bible does not say that coming to Christ means that we know already that God has been our Father all along. It means that we become His sons and daughters and we receive Christ and He becomes our Father through the reception of the love that He, that he brings into our lives through Jesus Christ. There is no universal fatherhood of God, no universal brotherhood of man. You need a father. You need a father. And the only way that God will be your father is through Jesus. If he's not your father through Jesus, he's your judge. He's one or the other. 
He's your judge. And hanging over you, according to the scriptures, is the wrath of God. Just read the third chapter of John. Read what Jesus says about this. The wrath of God abides on those who do not know Jesus. Come to Him. Put your trust in Him. But believer, I want you, I want you to focus as you leave here tonight on the fact that you are an heir. So we come again to verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And as an heir, I want you to understand that we are called to live out of this privilege. The adopted son of a Roman patrician held patrician rank no matter how low his birth had been. How low had our birth been? We were born fallen in Adam. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were corrupt in our hearts and in our natures. That's how low our birth had been. But now adopted into the family of God, through the work of the Spirit of God indwelling us, we understand that we have these wonderful privileges and that now we hold patrician rank no matter how low our birth had been. So live out of the privilege. Don't forget that you are a son of God, a daughter of God. Don't forget that you have these privileges as you go through the difficulties of life. And since being part of the family of God means just that, that you're part of a family, then remind one another of these things. Remind me when I'm discouraged that I'm a son of God, will you? Remind one another that you are a child of God and that you're adopted into the family of God. Will you? Tell your brothers and sisters, look up. Remember who you are. Remember the privileges that belong to you in Jesus Christ our Lord. Live out of the privileges and let us help one another do so. But also, because you are free in Christ... Use your freedom in the way in which God intends you to use the freedom. Let me remind you that Paul the Apostle that speaks so much of freedom, that Paul the Apostle who speaks of himself as a son, so frequently refers to himself also as a slave. He's a doulos, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Just read the opening of his epistles. Romans 1, for example, where he references the fact that he is a bond slave of Jesus Christ. I was talking with my son this week who reminded me as we were talking about this very theme. We have this American idea of what freedom is, and we tend to bring it to the Bible. And the American idea of freedom, of course, is autonomy. And so we think we're free in Christ. We think in American democratic terms we're autonomous people. But no, that's not it. The Bible says you're under one master or another master. You are either a slave of the devil or you are a bondservant, a willing slave of Jesus Christ because your will has been changed. But it's not that somehow you are not under the bondage of one or the other. There is the bondage that brings to freedom through Jesus Christ. And there is the bondage that brings to death under the devil. It is one or the other. And so use the freedom that has been granted to you by God's grace for the purpose for which God intends it. Again, I mentioned in Vespers, a friend of mine who called me, and I know he would not mind that I mentioned this. You won't know who I'm talking about. 
but a, a friend who, who said, and he had fallen into a, a very, very grievous sin that is very, very costly in his life. And you know what he said to me? I got hold of some bad theology. Theology always bears fruit of one kind or another, good or bad. He said, I got hold of some bad theology. I was understanding something or thought he understood something about about freedom in Christ, but he was translating that to mean license. He had become an antinomian rather than a follower of the Lamb, which is what freedom is all about. You see, in chapter 5, in verse 13, the apostle says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So use your freedom and use your inheritance and use your privileges for the purpose for which God gave it which is service to Christ and service to one another. Go and live as God's sons and live as God's children. May the Lord bless this brief exposition of his word.